Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar. And more importantly, today I get to speak with someone who's been on the podcast a couple of times before, a friend and colleague, Dr. Caleb Simmons, Associate Professor at the University of Arizona. We're talking about a fascinating new uh, SUNY publication, 2022, called Singing the Goddess into Place, Locality, Myth and Social Change in Chamundi of the Hill, a Kannada folktale. Um Caleb, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me again. I'm, I'm excited to be here for, I want to believe it's the third time. I believe so as well. I, I know it's not your first rodeo, but I think <laughs> it, might be your, it might be your third. Um, oh, I always remember that you were my, literally my fifth guest. Oh, that's amazing. You were my fifth guest on the podcast and now you're number 215. And congratulations for making it to over 200 as well. It's quite the milestone. Well, you know, in, in my retirement years, it's quite easy to produce the podcast, you know. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing all of you out there, you know, especially the job market. I'm still working. I'm still productive. Um, I haven't retired. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then wait, we had you back on. Tell me the second one. Remind me of the second one time we had you. The first one was Nine Nights at the Goddess, which was also SUNY. Uh, And then the second time was uh, my first monograph, Devotional Sovereignty, Religion, and Kingship in India. And that was with Oxford. Absolutely. Okay. Totally remember now. Um, So you're a busy boy. Second monograph in a couple of years, eh? Yeah. You know, it's, it, it, it comes from a lot of the same, uh, momentum as my first book. Uh, I had sort of all this information about Chamundi and tried to put it together. And ultimately, uh, it was just, it was enough, honestly, for five or six books. And I'm just still making my way through it. It's such a, Mysore is is such an interesting place um, and, and changes every day as, you know, most Indian cities do. Um, and it just, you know, it's just sort of a rife for so many conversations in the study of religion and study of Indian culture more broadly. It's a rich, rich, rich place for sure. So I think the subtitle says it all, but nevertheless, what's the book about? So the book um, takes as its primary subject matter a folk ballad uh, entitled Betara Chamundi or Chamundi of the Hill as as it's translated throughout the, the book, which tells a it's really a romantic comedy. It's about the goddess uh, Chamundi, who lives on Chamundi Hill outside Mysore, and her relationship with um, Nanjandeshwara or Nanjunda, um, uh, and who's a, a manif- local manifestation or local um, embodiment of Shiva. And their their trials and tribulations. It's it sort of follows sort of a formulaic rom com uh, mode, uh, but in that. It's a great mirror, a great reflection of life in 
the region and the things that happen there, the, the religion, the social interactions between caste, uh, marriage rules, like so all of it is just embedded in there and makes for a, an extremely rich uh, collection of, of songs and stories. And so this this body of work, uh, this this, this uh, Canada folktale, how are you? Um, what are your methods like? How are you looking at it? How how are you using it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I only ask great yeah, questions. Yeah, exactly. And this is one that's it's been a little troubling because you know I'm not a musicologist, and so when I when I'm talking about songs, a lot of people want me to dive a little bit more into that aspect, and you know I'm. I'm I'm just not capable of doing it. So I, I lean on my, my, the strength of my training uh, in religious studies, which is, you know, largely ethno historical, uh, but then also um, sort of uh, literary history. So I read it very much as, as a text. Uh, and this is one of the things that uh, I struggled with as I was writing is that I'm taking this very dynamic tradition and taking a snapshot in time and then dissecting it um, but in, in many ways, it, it winds up being true to some of my other interests and in, your own interest in piranhas, uh, that they're, you know, the, these dynamic performative texts that then get codified and concretized in one thing. So uh, you can see as you go through the text that it's got some very old elements, it's got some newer elements. Um, and the particular version uh, that I'm working with was originally collected by a great uh, Kanadiga folklorist, um, Professor Rajashekara, uh, who published it uh, and was very, very kind in letting me work from that. Um, and so between his version that he had collected, and this was uh, by a um, a Kamsale sort of master balladeer, uh, Mahadevaya. And between that and other versions that I heard, you could see even then how I'd been updated since Rajeshekara collected it in the 70s. Um, and so you, you wind up getting, again, it's, 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 it was a work of weird process of looking at a dynamic song that changes in performance, yet wanting to mine out some of the questions that I had left over from my own time in Mysore, my own research. And that was really about, it, was, it all started with thinking about Stala Purana and how localities tell their own history, not within a, a narrow sense of like, you know, human history, but a broad cosmological um, version of their own history, connecting it to Puranas, to gods and goddesses, and how those gods and goddesses are alive in the in the very place. So that's how I started. And um, I thought the book was going to be completely about sort of myth and locality. And then with everything going on in the world as I was writing, the idea of social change started to um, become foremost in my mind. And so there's uh, it sort of shifts toward the end when I start thinking about sort of this embedded cultural context. This is not just a reflection, but it's an they're advocating for change as well. Which, uh, you know, one of, since you talk a little bit about how the book ends, tell us about the structure. What is, how are the chapters structured? Yeah, so it starts off with um, an introduction uh, in which I kind of lay out the the overall narrative um, in, a, in a very short, condensed way. I introduce the uh, the major characters, the goddess Chamundi, uh, her sister Utnali, and then uh, Nanjandeshwara. 
and um, sort of tell about their situatedness, their temples, their the, the background historically. Uh, and then I introduce, of course, the the song itself, the community that sings it, and a little bit more about uh, that performative culture, and then get into some theoretical questions about calling it like a folk ballad. Uh, what's the value in, in saying folk versus something else? Uh, what's the value in myth? Sort of interrogating some of those larger ideas. And then I kind of, you know, march through the, the, the subtitle sort of systematically, uh, in which I start off with, you know, looking at the very first song, which is about the myth of the slaying of the buffalo demon. And just kind of analyze it on its own uh, because it is a, you know, it's its own story. Um, and I'm careful not to say it's a derivative of the Sanskritic uh, story because it's not, it has meaning on its own. Um, and so I, I look at it, but then I also do compare it to other versions that you find in Dave Mahatmyam, Devi Bhagavata Purana, uh, and see how, how this myth does different work. Uh, for the community, uh, like talking about Mysore's locality and specifically how caste plays an important role constantly in the understanding of, of place. And then after that, um, I start talking about in the next chapter about it's also a source for urban history. Uh, so most of the time when we write histories of cities, and I've done this with Mysore myself, I just look at the royal archives and say, here's the history, royal inscriptions, royal histories. Uh, but then when you look at this, they understand the history of the place differently. Uh, so if you think about how the city's grown, how the neighborhoods are divided, all this information is embedded. Um, and then the next chapter, we'll move on, this is chapter four, uh, look at the, the narrative and the argument for social change related to caste and intercaste marriages and the way people treat one another based on their perception of, of caste, which leads into the, the concluding chapter of the analysis in which I look at uh, these terms high and low, because they're actually terms that are used throughout the, throughout the ballot itself to think about what is high religion and what is low religion and thinking about it in a new way in the context of the goddess and Southern Karnataka in which uh, high and low are important terms, but they refer to different aspects of the goddess, namely that the high version is related to giving of moksha and vegetarianism, and low is, you know, giver of enjoyment um, and is non-vegetarian. But these aren't related to valuations. Both of these are important parts of the goddess tradition, and they have to work together. Then finally, there's a translation of the of the songs, so people can kind of follow along a little better. There's a there's a fascinating analog to this work, and um, uh, that of a scholar, uh, Noor Van Bressel. Uh, she looks at um, doing a collaborative paper. She looks at another regional goddess narrative, Kerala, the Bhadrakali Mahatma, that's what it is. And uh, part of what we're doing is comparing, okay, so where do we see parallels in the Devi Mahatmya? And where do we see things that are entirely local, regional, and there's a synergy. And so could you comment a little bit about the high-low in this context? And in your view, is that comparable to, or is that distinct from how we have, uh, we sometimes teach Hinduism as you know, the big tradition, little tradition. Yeah, no, this is a, a, another really good thing for us to reflect on. And how I 
why I wanted to, to make sure I included it was based on that sort of ethnographic portion of this work. Whenever I would go to, to Chamundi Hill, and I, you know, I lived there for, for two years, so I was there pretty frequently throughout that time, at least several times a week. And I would usually try to, to walk the, the steps from the base to the top every day. At the, the base of the hill, people are worshiping Chamundi. Uh, and the rituals they do um, are generally self-led. Sometimes they'll, they'll hire a, a religious uh, or ritual professional to, to help them. And they're often blood sacrifices. Uh, even though this is technically illegal, there's, you know, police see it and then, and sometimes even engage in it. Um, and then you go up the hill, same people. So it's not like they're not allowed to go up. So then they go up and then you go to the temple. And then when you get to the temple, there's, um, you know, Dikshita Brahmins are the, the head priest. And so they run a very, um, Agamic uh, temple. It's you know based on the Shivagamas, and um, she's vegetarian. And I you know I, I tried to work through this with both people at the bottom of the hill and the top as they were doing rituals. And I was most shocked probably by some of the conversations with um, Shashi Shekhar Dikshita, the, the head priest of of Chamundeshwari. Uh, and he was explaining because I I was like, isn't Chamundeshwari, she's vegetarian, right? And he was like, no, um, she's not. Uh, and even within, you know, this, this priest, his version, he was like, we don't do them here, but she likes blood. It gives her power and people do it. You just have to go down a little bit. So, and that was the exact term he used. It wasn't like you don't have not go outside. So it wasn't about outside of the temple. It's down. And literally, because she's up on a hill, you could see people just go down a tiny bit and do rituals. And this included people who uh, worked at the temple uh, for, for certain rituals. I, I've seen, you know, not at the top of a hill, but not very far down either, people doing uh, chicken sacrifices. Uh, and so as I started to, to reflect on this more and more about the go down portion, I started to realize that there is a like a, a three-dimensional ritual landscape in this, in this place that um, it, both were incorporated, but somehow the the verticality of of the space was tied to these rituals and again even with the head priest talking it wasn't like he was saying like you know these people don't understand because it's something you, you sometimes hear with um, people explaining vegetarian hinduism versus meat eating is like oh they don't understand uh they're superstitious but he he gave them you know, same validity and said they were important rituals. The goddess needs them both. Uh, and at that point, I started thinking like this really isn't when we use high and low, we put this like value system on it often. Uh, when the way it was being used in this specific context, it's no valuation. Uh, it's just about um, ritual placement, maybe would be a good word. And so then, um, then would you would you not see the hill as hierarchical or would you would you see the verticality as as hierarchical in some way um i mean there are inherently some hierarchies that become overlaid on it i mean if you look at uh, economics for instance uh the chamundeshwari temple now is has become very wealthy and through that so have the the priest um but so there's there's some social hierarchies that are embedded, and that's you know also at the the heart of this these stories. But when we talk about ritual efficacy, probably it's an inverted hierarchy. 
that it, that blood is sacrificed is seen as being way more efficacious and way more powerful. So it it flips that on the end, and of course, it's all about goals, as we know with the goddess. Like you can you can want the this worldly things, or you can want the earl otherworldly. Um, and and that's the great thing. As I mean, I'm you know telling you this, but in the David Mahatmya, uh, you know when. All my students, when I teach it, they're all just like, oh, my goodness, how could the king choose to rule? And but actually, that, the story is all about him. That, 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 that <laughs> is my first book. That sentence yeah. right there, that's my first book. The Devi Mahatmya is not, it's, it's exalting the king's dharma over that of the merchant rather than, than, than exalting the merchant over the king. It's saying, you know, this is an important dharma. This is the dharma of God as protection, bloodshed. And there's this snippet where they sacrifice a lot of their own limbs. And to me, this speaks volumes. This speaks volumes. And uh, it's all conjecture. I mean, as far as I know, this would be your area of expertise, but it really feels to me like um, there were there were traditions. I mean, uh, the reason we don't have the great goddess in, in the Hindu fold before circa 5th century CDs, at some point she was introduced to the Brahmanic world, but Clearly, folks have been worshiping her for centuries, if not millennia. And clearly, that worship involved, uh, you know, the mother is emblematic of, 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 of this material creation that, you know, beings eat beings to sustain themselves. And it just seems to me that there seems to be this, you know, it, 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 just to conjecture that there, there is this perhaps tradition of blood sacrifice and honoring uh, a great goddess figure in this manner that far predates, you know, uh, the Brahmanization thereof. And mm. people have that cultural memory. They're like, nope, that's the more powerful ritual. That's, that's the, that's, that's the first one, right? That's, you know, it's primal in some way. Well, to that point too, I mean, when you, and you, if you think of this case of, of Chamandeshwari and Mysore as being like a sort of sample of this, uh, the temple wasn't Brahminic until the early 19th century. Uh, it was, you know, agriculturalist caste who were the, the head priest until uh, Krishna Raja III um, basically imports uh, Tamil Dikshitas in uh, to take over. And then, then you wind up getting this very complex uh, hierarchy of, of, the priest within the temples uh and so i i have somewhere in my notes like they were trying to explain to me like the different castes and their like their ritual roles and how this meant they related to one another like and they literally said like this one's the top this one's number two this one's number three and so there's five caste groups who are the priests in there uh, and they're all assigned different roles and duties which then come with prestige so you know all these things um wind up being overlaid with all of these like social caste-based issues that tie back to ritual which you know the the more you're in india the more you do research um you know as a as a, a white man coming in first like nobody really wanted to talk caste with me uh, and honestly it was tough and so i didn't want to bring it up either uh, but then more and more people um as uh, they got more comfortable with me they started also discussing caste and um it, it's just sort of an assumption about ritual purity and caste and you know of course we all we all know this um and it's not everyone is aligned and that's another thing that came through this book is like when you think about someone who is uh, and i'm using air quotes here low caste 
I don't really see themselves as low caste often. <laughs> like, like they may know this way people perceive them, but like in the the David Arguda subcast um, with the Comsolis, the um, people who sing this song, they come from. Uh, they view themselves as descendants from the of the founders of Vijayanagara, um, and they were descendants of. Shiva and Parvati themselves. And so if you think about that as their lineage, I mean, they're not saying like, oh, we were born low because of our previous sins. They're saying, y'all don't understand our, actually, we're, we're much higher than this. Fascinating. Do you want to play a little bit of it for us? Yeah, yeah, let me play a little bit. So the, what I'm going to play is um, a, a very small snippet uh, that was shared to me um, by Professor Rajashekara. Uh, and it's not um, the the other recordings that I have of the songs are very bad, but this is um, he is not just a folklore scholar, but also uh, creates music and dramas himself. So this is in the same musical style, um, an updated version that he himself wrote, and it was recorded in the studios of News One Canada. Uh, so the the uh, sound quality is is very good. Yeah, so as you can tell, it's it's pretty lively. Yeah, without question. And uh, when you were doing your research, when the folk ballad, as you call it, was playing, what was happening? Paint a picture for the listeners. All right, so I, I, I'm glad you asked me this question because I want to give you the full history of, of I, me and the I, story. I, Caleb, I, I don't yeah. I don't say this to other guests, but I only ask good questions sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I uh, I I was in um, Mysore on the American Institute of Indian Studies Canada Language uh, Fellowship, and I had already completed the intensive summer program and was about to start the year long, and I saw an ad in the paper. Uh, for a new drama, a new play that was going to be playing at this open air theater. Uh, and it was called Chama Chalave. Didn't recognize the the words. Uh, so I uh, asked my professor what it was about. And he said, oh, it's about Chamundi. And so I was like, all right, this is a good chance for me to really try my my new, new learned Kannada. Uh, and so I went. And I, I went on the first night and there was probably 50 people. And it was someone, another person, um, Sujita Aki had written it. Uh, she's also from this community. And she um, had updated it a little a little bit. Uh, and they had actors actually portraying all the roles. And so instead of just being sung, and as the singers who were part of the the uh, acting troupe, they would sort of go around from scene to scene and then people would, would act it out and the narrative parts would be spoken by the, the people playing all of the divine characters. Um, and it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. It was hilarious. Um, and, you know, it was in pretty 
like refined but spoken Kannada, so it was pretty easy to to understand. Of course, I didn't get it all. It took me many, many times listening to it and reading it to to really get it all. Um, but it was enough to where I knew like this this story was amazing um, and funny and heartbreaking and heartwarming, sort of all at the same time. And I was like, I, I want to know more about this, so I went on the second night. The crowd grew to probably from fifty to about a hundred. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the third night. By that time, there were hundreds of people there. This thing wound up running. It was supposed to be a one-week thing. It was uh, students who were, were putting it on, students and people who worked in, like, IT there in Mysore. And they wound up having to, like, quit their jobs uh, and become professional actors uh, and, and sing this song every night. And it wound up moving from Mysore to Bangalore to one of, like, the big um, – theaters and so it was huge and it resonated and of course this gave me like more interest in it and finding like the different folk versions and you know there's been several folklores who have collected the different versions um pk ragashekara i mean his book um basically the uh the intro has a, a bunch of um great discussions of other published works on, on the subject uh, so it's it's extremely rich. It's so like whenever in that version, like I said, that people were acting it out. Usually when you hear it, it's a small troop of singers uh, who you have one person who's like the lead, call them narrator. And then you have like the troop uh, and Kamsale uh, actually isn't the, the cast name. Uh, Kamsale is like a nickname for the part of the, of the subcast of the David or good. And it, it means symbol. And so there's these little symbols that they have on their fingers to keep beats. So you have people with that. Sometimes someone with what looks like a tambourine uh, sort of keeping beat. And then you would just sort of stand there and sing the songs. Uh, usually, you know, depending on where you are, uh, you would get a few people gather around and, and give money. Um, and then of course there were more sort of, um, curated shows where they'd be planned and then you would get bigger crowds. Uh, but you could hear it in a lot of different contexts or even just not all of it, small portions of it here and there. Um, often again, in the context that I would hear small portions would be people sort of, you know, street performers looking for donations. What do you um, most hope people might take away from this book? Core takeaways, themes. Core takeaways. Well, the thing that I most want to share is the the songs themselves. The story is just amazing. It's, you know, it's just so much fun. And it's, it's just a great story. And then once you get the story, I think that almost anyone can sense it's like latent magnitude, um, that it, there's something there that is powerful. And so I hope from the book, people get that this is powerful in different ways for different people. And I think that's the beauty of art is that it can, it can speak to someone interested in the city. It can speak to someone about the cosmological significance of Mysore, uh, but it also can talk about the realities of a place. And it can talk about caste discrimination and how people are discriminated against daily. And this manifest in name calling and physical violence but ultimately, those caste distinctions are social constructions that can change. And that's really sort of the heart of it is like, if you really think about, and in this case, it's people's connection to the divine, 
those caste distinctions aren't that important because everybody has access to different sort of ritual modes. Uh, so that's you know not as a spoiler, but I think people can kind of guess uh, Chamundi and uh, Nanjan Deshwara get together in the end. And it's because his other wives recognize that um, she's powerful. Uh, she has, in this case, the ability to raise people from the dead and do like um, tantra mantra magic. Um, and so they, they recognize this and they say, you know, her being of a quote unquote low caste isn't important because she's just one of us. Um, and so I think that's sort of the, yeah, that's really my key takeaway is that I, you know, I want people to understand that these songs aren't just mythological tales but they actually they do things they do work and and mythology itself does work and these these yep. songs do even even more uh, perhaps uh, yeah, more um pertinent or pressing or timely work and i mean there's, yeah, so, it, there's so many key themes go on sorry i was gonna say that reminds me of it and I think people dismiss mythology and it reminds me of an, an article by Travis L. Smith, which I, I cite all the time because I, I still find it powerful. And he was one of my PhD advisors and it was about um, the Kashi story um, and how it had embedded within it debates of the time. Uh, and that always impressed upon me that like we think things that happen, you know, millennia ago, are just these old stories and not us as scholars, but often our students, these are just like interesting old stories, but really they're, they're embedded in these social systems and in these debates. And they, they were speaking directly to people, uh, which I, I just find endlessly fascinating. Without question, the, 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 the vibrancy and relevance of, of, of the Puranas and such tales, perhaps, um, Perhaps it is easy to overlook that absent a Pauranika or, or, or a bardic figure or someone telling the tales, but these tales live and they're, they're meant to be retold uh, to, to audiences in particular regions and particular languages at particular times. And, and um, I just finished, um, every once in a while I get a, a sessional contract uh, so that I can corrupt the youth at some university. And, 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 <laughs> and I, just, I just finished uh, a couple, I did a contract at um, Lethbridge University, taught a couple of courses and uh, I must have fooled them into thinking I was a good teacher because they renewed it for, this, for, for the summer. And I, I designed this course called Myths of India. Uh, uh, not a misnomer. <laughs> um, the, 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 the new book, Stories Behind the Poses, just came out towards the end of the course. So I couldn't assign it, but I ended up, don't tell the publisher, um, leaking most of that book to the students <laughs> because the, the retellings were a little more accessible than the, the, mm -hmm. and, uh, the, the Van Buten and the you know, 70s and, um, classical Hindu mythology. And that was, uh, we had discussion in every class and I was so impressed. And so, um, yeah, I, I was impressed uh, that the, the students totally grokked the ways in which this could be relevant. I mean, some of that had to do with the tellings, but they took it in all kinds of directions and they mm. were able to apply it to all kinds of stuff happening on the ground right now. And um, I think that is the power of myth. Like it, it's, it's relevance, it's potential relevance uh, to speak to large themes, sociological themes, psychological themes, blah, blah, blah. Enough of me interrupting to wax poetically. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. I mean, because the thing that, um, and 
I'm trying to think of which scholar it was that that mentioned this. It's it's older, um, uh, but anyway, it's about you know just how myth can take a is a story of like local significance of, lo- of local meaning, but then by putting it in these narratives of gods and goddesses, it winds up making it have so much more gravity. Right. So something if you're like if you tell a story about you know somebody over here somebody over there with like sort of they have a name but they're faceless now all of a sudden if you tell the same story and it's the goddess you worship and the god you worship uh, now people can you know they can envision this and they can start to think well maybe this isn't the way things ought to be uh, of course it's you know it's very like when you think about david mahatma you have the work of like work of like cynthia humes uh with uh vin Devosini, who says like there's a disconnect between uh deities and real women and of course there there is but there is a way that stories like this that are meant for again the folk the you know sort of the, the broader populace um they can make that connection in ways that a sanskritic tell like isn't uh, able to resonate so i think that's you know with these folk ballads uh, it's it's a power that they have that's unique yeah without question um i, I just you know you'll have to look at it at some point it so reminds me of 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 uh the badr kali mahatmya in, in many ways and also um I had Brenda Beck on a few months ago hmm. talking about her work on a, on a Tamil folktale that she's been working on for decades. That she's, so there's, there's so much fascinating work um, in this field. Uh, and I don't, I won't get too nerdy. I don't generally talk shop on the podcast because we need to make it accessible, but I, I can't help myself. I have to say that um, one of the ways, for example, that um, this particular iteration of the feminine divine, uh, perhaps problematizes uh, an existing typology. In my view, that typology is problematic to begin with. But the typology of the breast goddess versus the tooth goddess, the typology of the, the independent, uh, you know, fierce, you know, Chamunda, you know, Chamundi in this case. And 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 yet, um, she's also very much a concert goddess, right? The whole the whole ballad is a, is a romantic comedy, as you as you playfully put it. And so, do you want to say a little bit about that that? that tension or if there is one here yeah i mean the the tension is maybe not so obvious at chamundeshwari because if you when you see the goddess uh when you go into the temple for for darshan uh like many temples you're kind of far away from her and she's covered in flowers so you can't really make out what the image is at all you can kind of see part of a face but it's um it's got so many years of, of sort of smoke and ash and soot that it's like, you know, caked over um, black color now, or I guess charcoal color. Um, but she's a stone and she's the slayer of the, the buffalo demon. Um, whenever you get to, to get closer. And again, I, I've been very fortunate with uh, having such a long relationship with Chamundeshwari is that uh, they'll, they will often allow me back for, you know, things that most people aren't allowed to see so you get to see and, and it's you know it's a pretty old image maybe not as old as some people want to say it is um, no art historians i won't try to exact date it uh, but people don't really see that version of her very often you just see like i said the flowers and a little bit of the face what you do see is her um the one that comes out the festival image for procession twice a day and that image is 
really quite um, abnormal for a Chamunda. Um, she is, looks like a baby, uh, has a sweet little infant face. If you look very closely, she has fangs, but you can't see that when she's being processed. Uh, you have to be very close. But now um, my Instagram blows up every day with uh, Chamunda Shuri photos. Uh, so it's you know one of my great joys in life is to wake up and see you know hundreds of photos of her. It's all those you can now see it pretty predominantly. But before we had access to, to such so many images, you just have to use your eyes. And there you couldn't really see the fangs because she really looks like a baby. Again, she'll have, she has, holds her uh, weapons, but she's not, you know, killing a, a buffalo demon in the, in the image. So she has sort of more of the identity of, of Durga, uh, but not Durga sort of in the act of, of blood letting, but Durga sort of as a, um, subdue not subdued that's not a great word but a, a more docile um, moment in her life um, and then locally is where you get all of the connections with her with with shiva so she kind of becomes parvati so she's if you're looking at like a, a spectrum of goddess and you've got chamunda on one end and, and parvati on the other with being one being domestic one being sort of um wild or the the tooth and, and breast and then Durga's in the middle this is Durga leaning toward Parvati except for one night and that one night is the the eighth night of Navaratri uh when she's um the celebration of her killing Mahishasra and in that night the processional image itself is transformed uh she wears a wig uh that's like um sort of dreaded dark black hair she wears a garland of skulls uh, she wears a skirt of arms she's just transformed into this goddess that looks extremely fierce even though she still has that little infant face that's masked behind all these other wild elements and then that night is the only night that the temple is 100 percent closed for its rituals um and what you hear from the outside um and I, I was invited to go into to watch the rituals but there were some there were some issues with some other people trying to get in and so i, I decided to defer um and so I, i'll always have this question of what went on that night but you hear gunshots um you hear loud drums you hear fireworks all this going on in the temple so i mean i'll let other people connect the dots and i won't quite speculate what's what's probably going on in the temple that night but at least for that one night she is completely fierce so fierce that in was it 15 days later she has to be put to sleep for a night to allow her to completely cool off and then she's woken back up for her the rest of her ritual year in which she's sort of the infant docile goddess so she's she's both um, and I think that's, you know, thinking back to um, my other mentor, one of my other mentors, Kathleen Erndl, uh, with her book, um, Victory to the, to the Mother. That was kind of her point is that the goddess is all these things. We just only highlight certain of them at certain times. Fascinating. Um, who might most benefit from reading this uh, fascinating book? What what what, you know, what it's, fields or what you know you get the drift. Yeah, I mean it's it's written for my undergrads, and I I, I point that out in the preface is I I was never intending to write this book, but when I teach my um, women goddesses and power in Hinduism course, which is actually adapted from an old course that Kathleen Erndl taught, um, every student. It's just also it's cross listed with gender women's studies, and so the questions that people have are like how 
does this affect real women? And it's based on sort of the construction of the course in which we ask some of these like great second wave feminist questions about, you know, what if we all worshiped a goddess? And so that's one of the themes. And every, every semester I teach it, I wind up having to talk about this story. And finally, I was like, I just need them to be able to read it. Uh, and then that started the, the process. So it's really meant as a, a text to have conversations with, with undergrads. Uh, but that being said, I don't think it's, I think, I still think it's valuable for scholars to think of these questions, the theoretical questions about high and low, really, because they were terms that we don't use in religious studies anymore because of its valuation, inherent valuation. And I think that that's problematic because traditions themselves use the term. Uh, so it's it's something that we're you know forcing traditions to to let go of because we're uncomfortable with the way that you know Oriel, orientalists used to use it. And so it, part of it is to say like these terms are meaningful. We just have to be respectful of the traditions that we're studying and understand how they use the terms and how verticality is incorporated into their system of meaning as well. Well, verticality and or hierarchy is not. Uh, unique to uh, uh, to any given culture under the sun, it's just a question uh, of um, first learning and understanding how folks understand themselves mm-hmm. before imposing our value system or our hierarchy um, exactly to them. Um, and and I do want to put, verticality doesn't always mean hierarchy, and that's the uh, and that's hierarchy is there, but it's not the two aren't. Mute, like one's not tantamount yeah. to the other. So, right. so if and, unless I misspoke, what I what I meant to say just now, I hope I did, is verticality and or hierarchy. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, um, excellent. So, um, is there anything else about the book that you wanted to touch on uh, in the podcast? Um, you know, I I, I just want to continue to emphasize and i think we, we've already done this a lot but um hopefully if, if people are thinking about using a, a book on hindu goddesses in a, in a broader course on on hinduism or religion in south asia um that you know one of the things when we think about religious studies and overall enrollments and all these trends that we have to think about um i think part of the reason is a lot of people are expecting us to really talk about um, current events and how religion plays a role in that. And often, and I was guilty of this a lot myself, I was really interested in like historical aspects of it. Uh, And this book is very much a a product of my own learning about pedagogy and making things relevant for my students. And to think about, you know, even if you're telling um, you're teaching a course like I do on Hindu mythology. Uh, it's still a great opportunity to have students think through issues of, of social injustice. And there's plenty of resources for us to, to do this and to, to push our students to think about um, power dynamics and to think about um, inequalities and what we can do for equity and how, you know, people who are underrepresented and are discriminated against listen to their voices uh, because they have um, they have ideas about how we can overcome 
uh, this, these inequalities and how we can achieve social change. And they're embedded in stories like this. So we just have to open our eyes to it um, and open our students' eyes to it. And then, and then we need to talk about it because uh, that's one of the most important things that you know, sometimes is missing from the discussions. We need to be, have frank conversations. Indeed, stories from the epics and the and the, and the Puranas are are uh, the replete with moments of people being discriminated against for a variety of reasons. And the moral of the story is that person has something very valuable to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, um, oh, there's so many, so so many. I was uh, this morning. I was just doing a little bit of um, teaching on one of the stories from the book uh, Ashtavakra. He's uh, deformed. He has um, he's physically disabled. A sage physically disabled because of uh, of his father's curse but he's he's the brightest uh, brightest mind brightest sage of the day and they wouldn't let him participate in the debate in the debate because of his disability but once they do he actually wins the debate so, right you know i mean fascinating um uh, i better not go down the rabbit hole of indian myth right <laughs> um <laughs> otherwise you may not do anything else today um i want to um Thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's always a delight to, to chat, whether it's on the podcast or elsewhere. Indeed. And speaking of elsewhere, what I want to do is formally extend an invitation to you uh, that in so doing, I'll also extend to members of the audience. Um, no one knows about this yet, but we're going to tell them now. Um, at the, uh, for, for, for scholars, uh, South Asianists and friends, um, anyone at all interested, we're going to have the first hopefully, probably annual um, 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 reception at the American Academy of Religion and, and New Books in Indian Religions. A reception uh, generally, uh, generally, um, generously uh, sponsored by uh, New Books Network, all other uh, podcast hosts um, who maybe there are welcome. I'll, I'll issue personal invites, of course. But um, for some reason, I feel like you should be the first person to be invited to this. And in so doing, uh, the cat's out, the cat's out of the bag. So six to nine on the Friday, um, it's sort of your South Asianist uh, watering hole to kick off the conference. Well, I am, I am truly honored and you know, I'll be there. So hopefully, hopefully we'll see lots of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and in the program, I think rather than call it the, the new books in Indian religions reception, I couldn't resist the alliteration and the fun. It's called the new books in Indian religions podcast party. It's called party. <laughs> it's the podcast party. We're having a party. Um, great. I think it'll be good fun. It'll be good fun. Yeah, it'll be Denver, awesome. In Denver this year. Okay. Um, for those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Caleb Simmons uh, of University of Arizona on fascinating new uh, Sunni press publication called Singing the Goddess into place. Until uh, next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, and keep contemplating uh, the power of myth and art uh, to affect change in our times. Take care.